Welcome to the latest installment of the Castlebridge Talk Data to Me podcast. Uh, this month, um, we're, we're we're stepping back from the bright lights and, and and wonderment of having my daughter run the podcast last month, um, and we're now chatting with Alexander Hanf from Think Privacy in Sweden, our partners there, and I have Joshua from the Castlebridge team uh, on the call today, uh, and we're going to be talking today about the second wave of COVID, not not the illness, but the technology responses and the implications of what might be coming down the pipeline uh, in terms of technology capability that on the face of it looks really cool until you pick it, pick back at it and see what's on, under the surface and the potential implications of that both from an effectiveness point of view and from a, a trade-off of, of, of rights um, in society and again this is echoes the, the the podcast we did back in march when we looked at contact tracing apps uh with phil booth from med confidential and we'll put a link to that uh podcast in the in the, in the landing page for this podcast when it goes out but uh alexander do you want to introduce yourself to everybody and give a bit, a bit of background and then uh, explain why you are concerned uh yeah okay so i'm alexander Hanf, as you rightfully said I suspect probably actually most people who listen to your podcast already know me, um, but I'm the, the co-founder and, and CEO of Think Privacy um, in Sweden. We're a, a privacy everything company, so everything from research, development, lobbying, uh, legal advisory services, training, everything to do with privacy and data protection, we're, we're effectively in there. Um, I've been, as you know, Dara, working in privacy for a long time now, well over a decade, uh, and I've been involved in in some of the most um, ground shifting changes in privacy legislation in the world. Uh, heavily involved in in the changes to the e-privacy directive back in 2009, otherwise known as the, the Cookie Directive. Um, very heavily involved in the development of GDPR from December 2011 when the first draft was leaked, uh, and was on the drafting or helped with the drafting of the upcoming e-privacy regulation in the European Parliament. So. To say that I live and breathe privacy and data protection is, it would be an understatement. Uh, it's my life. So uh, basically, it, it's all your fault. Yeah, it's all my fault, as I, as I keep getting told, actually. Uh, I get introduced. I'm, I'm on the faculty of Singularity University. Whenever I give a seminar, I get introduced as the guy who's responsible for GDPR, <laughs> which, when you're in a room full of C-suites, is not necessarily a, the most appropriate way to be introduced. But it is what it is, right? Um, obviously, being a privacy advocate and a long-term privacy lobbyist, when it comes to COVID-19, particularly with technology which can be used for surveillance and track and trace, uh, it's something I pay a great deal of interest in and have been doing uh, with a number of parties over the past, uh, well, approaching 12 months now, I guess, um, since the first COVID cases arose. So, you know, with the... I mean, I'm not going to give a full speech on some of the problems with with COVID uh, COVID uh, surveillance technologies. We'll we'll do that as a group throughout the conversation. Uh, but needless to say, I have some very strong concerns um, in relation to not just the implementation of of public surveillance by public bodies um, in order to of the COVID-19 pandemic, but also once the pandemic ends or is seen to have ended, um, as we move into people moving back into their work environments or academic environments uh, and being su subjected to new levels of surveillance uh, for various reasons, which we'll discuss later on as well. So, yeah, it's a, a very interesting, very important topic. 
And Josh, what's your take on, do you want to introduce yourself because it's been a while since you've been on the podcast? Sure thing. I'm a researcher at Castlebridge doing work with Trinity College Dublin as well, where I am um, a Mary Curie um, fellow, really looking at data protection law. My background is coming from advocacy work and some public interest litigation in South Africa for the most part, where I'm a little bit familiar with issues of government overreach and the potential for um, surveillance to fall well within the gamut of their tools. Um, worked, uh, proud to say I've worked in a civil society organization which has had our computers stolen by government-linked raids. Um, that being said, I'm also very well familiar with when the only saving grace in the surveillance regime is its ineptitude. So I come from a slightly suspicious background, believing in a lot of the potential here, but also very wary of even the best intentions and where they might fight. And I think that's kind of the the starting point here. The, the road to hell is always paved with good intentions. So what we saw in the first wave was the rush to contact tracing apps. And we saw, we've also seen the rollout of thermal scanners. And I will beat my head against the wall until I am absolutely concussed, pointing out to people that they don't work for this particular purpose. Irrespective of the data privacy issues and data protection issues, thermal scanning is not actually a good public health control measure for COVID-19 for a variety of reasons. In the second phase, we're seeing similar things. Like Alexander, I've been look, hearing about things like gate analysis, distance analysis, AI-enabled event detection. What what stuff are you hearing? Um, I mean, we just had a brief a brief chat about this before we started recording, but we just heard just in the last couple of days, really, that there's been a breakthrough AI which can detect a COVID cough, um, which, uh, you know, for those of us who work in data protection would understand that that would be classified as biometric data because it's the whole reason why they're able to, to detect it is because uh, it's coming from you as a person um, and you're physically having that cough in that environment. And... First of all, I'd be very skeptical as to how accurate this is, because uh, we often hear, you know, AI or machine learning is the answer to everything. And believe me, as the co-founder of an AI company, um, I, <laughs> I'm as skeptical of, of many of these things uh, that we hear in, in the press, because it isn't a silver bullet. You know, AI has its issues. And, and you know, before you even start to think about things like algorithmic bias and all the other issues that come along with that, um, these are untested technologies and they've been, you know, the environments that they've been tested in are relatively small statistically compared to the spread of this disease across the planet and the different environments that people may be in where this technology is being deployed. It raises questions with regards to the type of technologies which will be deployed both now and in the future um, in order to detect these, these types of uh, infections moving forward. So at the moment, you know, it's generally considered that having microphones attached to CCTV systems um, is not conducive with data protection uh, or privacy. Uh, and that, in, you know, in many cases, it isn't considered as proportionate or justified. Um, and it's, you know, so, so as such, we generally don't use it. But as we've seen with uh, a certain large global tech companies, um, smart thermostats, 
for being as tactful as I can in the situation, um, having microphones installed that they claim they didn't know were there, uh, how long will it be before we start to see surveillance technologies within, not just within public spaces, but within uh, work environments, uh, which now have audio recording capabilities as well for the purpose or under the, 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 the guise that this technology is going to be used to detect and potentially prevent the outbreak of COVID or other uh, such um, diseases which may or viruses which may come forward in the future. And that to me is a, a deep concern because as we know and as was, was just said before uh, by Josh, we can't really trust how these technologies will be used. We've seen time and time again, I mean, and the biggest example is the Patriot Act and the sunset clauses there, um, which effectively became permanent measures in many cases. Um, once capabilities have been implemented, once capabilities have been granted, it is incredibly rare that those in power are willing to give those capabilities up. So once we get into a situation where we have mass surveillance under the guise of trying to detect and control a global pandemic, it's highly unlikely that those um, capabilities will be handed over again at the end of the crisis for various reasons. A, nobody likes to give up power. Um, B, the intelligence that can be gathered from surveillance is incredibly useful in many cases. Um, although that's debatable, there's the old needle in the haystack uh, situation which can pop up in certain circumstances. Uh, but then the other side of that as well is there's a lot of money to be made from these technologies, you know, and there'll be a lot of companies who are selling these technologies and then lobby those in power to continue to use these technologies in order to protect their bottom line. And, and at the end of the day, we live in a capitalist world. And any technology which is produced for any purpose is produced for one primary purpose. And that primary purpose is to make money. And, and that's the key thing I'm looking at, Alexander, in terms of, of this. Any technology is implemented throughout history. Um, I come from a, a, a law and finance perspective. There is a business case template somewhere that says the return on investment period and payback period is three to five years. So no one's going to spend money on a thing now without having some notion of getting some form of return on investment and payback over a three to five year period, even in the government sector. And as you said, with the uh, with the, the thermostat with all the extra features, um, shall we say, um, <laughs> component creep is an element of scope creep where bits are added on. And I've seen this with relatively benign pieces of software in client organizations and in my time in the phone company where there was an extra bit installed because sure it was free and it was more effort to not to install it than to install it and over time you get those bits and pieces and again what we're seeing with things like uh, docker type implementations and containerized implementations of ai technologies is the bundling of the entire ecosystem into the into the package and then it's marketed and presented as you buy this box and then you just pay an incremental license fee for all the other bits you want to turn on when you want to turn them on and that's like putting a big button on the wall saying don't push this button because inevitably as anyone who's ever watched father ted somebody will push the damn button um and you'll wind up with the extra features being deployed. And 
the the thing that really gets me about AI technologies is that the whole thing about AI, it's it's clever sums on big data. And at the moment, the sample size for a COVID cough, where you know for certain it is a COVID cough, is relatively small, comparatively. Um, and the margin for error is quite high. If you take something as simple as the, the recent, I'm not sure if it was, was it a Swedish football team was up in arms because because the AI system recognized the referee's head. Yeah, the, the bald head, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it was a Swedish team, but I, re- I recall the, the art tweet you're talking about. It was just last week, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was last week. Again, the, the artificial intelligence system pick up the, ref, the referee's bald head as a ball. I mean, my, my wife's iPhone, um, the, the, the photo technology within my wife's iPhone, just the other day showed our dog as both a cat and a bird you know and <laughs> it's yeah. it's a no, it's a notoriously obvious problem that's been around for a long time you know, the ai's particularly rapidly deployed ai's are not particularly accurate it takes a long time to train an ai it takes a large amount of data to train an ai and the less of either of those reduces the quality of the output exactly um and that's one of the key challenges uh, because we're working in a very fast-moving environment uh, in a pandemic response. And while the perfect is the enemy of the good in a pandemic response, as Mike Ryan from the World Health Organization re- repeatedly says, sometimes imperfect at scale gets very, very bad very, very quickly. Uh, I, call that, I call that O'Brien's third law of process automation. Automating a bad process just makes bad stuff happen faster than you can ever possibly hope to clean it up. And that's the risk with some of these technologies, I think. And there's no I love clear, technology. Don't, there's don't no get me wrong. There's no clear example but, of that, Dara. Dara there's yeah. no clear example of that either um, with regards to, if you remember the Metropolitan Police uh, Facial Recognition Program, which no to id sent a bunch of freedom of information requests, and it came back that it was something like 96% failure rate. And that's on a technology which has been around for decades. Facial recognition has been around for decades. I mean, it's improved and improved as technology's improved. But after decades of algorithms for a system to be deployed at a law enforcement level, and bear in mind, when you're talking law enforcement, there should be no margin for error because people should never be wrongfully accused of a crime because of the impact that can have on their lives and their families' lives. But to come back with a failure rate, or I believe it was 96% was the failure rate, false positive yeah. rate, is just uh, astonishing. Um, and, and that's modern. That was just 18 months ago. And that brings me to an interesting discussion point, because a lot of these technologies are being deployed by organizations, both public sector and private, in order to balance their public liability issues and to try and demonstrate they're doing things to mitigate risk. I think there's an interesting question for any investor in an AI startup that's uh, getting into this area. If your product has a 96% failure rate and you're selling it as a tool to help balance public liability risk, are you willing to underwrite that risk? Yeah, and I suspect the answer in many cases would be a very fat no. And I think the other thing that comes down here as well, and the one thing that we haven't talked about yet, is trust. I mean, you know, people say I wear a tinfoil hat and that's, that's fair enough. They can say that I'm a privacy researcher, I'm a privacy advocate. I have to look at the shit that most people don't have to look at. 
Uh, and I have to understand it at a level that most people will never understand it at. Um, and the fact is, I do not trust the government. I do not trust the technology companies who are developing these technologies. Um, even as an avid Apple user, I do not turn on the Bluetooth contact tracing uh, API within my iPhone. Not because I don't trust Apple, but because I don't trust that the data which is obtained is not going to be used for other purposes in the future. That there will not be function creep. That there will not be scope creep, as you called it earlier. You know that that what we've been told will actually happen. And the reason for this couldn't be clearer. Even since the first contact trace that came out from the NHS, with very specific statements that it would not be used for other purposes, we're already seeing it being used for other fucking purposes. You know, so so if. This is a technology which needs to be deployed across a very large segment of society in order to be effective. And if you can't trust that technology, why would you ever enable that technology within your life? Because once you've done it, you can't retract it. You know, once, once that data is collected, you can't just claw that back. It's gone. You lose control of it. You know, so, and, and it comes down to trust. And I simply do not trust those in power to use my data in the way that they said they're going to use it and not more. Now, that point of trust is really interesting, Alexander, because here in Ireland, we had our contact tracing app and we expected the whole process to be the usual government shit show from a data protection perspective. And it turned out that it kind of wasn't because they did a really good DPIA and they published it and they published architecture diagrams and lots of information about how the application worked. And in the DPIA, there were a number of commitments made about certain things that would be done as part of the governance and oversight of the app. There was to be a review after 90 days of the effectiveness of the app. And there was to be a steering committee convened to oversee the governance of the app, an app governance board. Um, subsequently, the HSE has said that the 90-day period starts after the end of the pandemic. And we haven't seen any evidence as of yet, of any meeting of the oversight board. And this is the other aspect that we need to be able to trust the governments or businesses who are implementing these things. And DPIAs are a really, really important part of establishing that trust for the technologies. Um, but they have to follow through on the commitments they make in them or their exactly. meetings. Exactly. I think another thing as well is if, if you're trying to get the public to trust you at a large level 70 percent plus i would say in order for this technology to be effective then the first thing you shouldn't do is go out and hire one of the world's most famous surveillance and intelligence companies to develop and host the technology for that system because that is the exact opposite way in which you're going to make the people believe that your intentions are honest and that you're actually going to do things in a way which does preserve their privacy and their fundamental rights. And I don't think hiring Palantir and various other companies for this purpose was a, a spectacularly good idea on behalf of, of the government in this case. Well, in, in, that, in that case, that's the UK government with Palantir. Yes. Ireland, Ireland, I don't think, can afford Palantir, so we didn't hire them. Um we, we had other people involved in the development of, of our app. And again, Nearform, they did a fantastic job. I, my, my hat goes, my, my hat, I take my hat off to the guys in Nearform for the work they did putting the app together, 
for how they work really hard to implement privacy by design as part of the technology. And it's a really good case study of, case study of how to do it right to the point of deployment. But the follow through from a governance perspective is where the rubber hits the road. And as we look at the second wave, that's one of the key lessons that I think needs to be learned. These technologies need to be scrutinized. You need to do the DPA because you are putting in place a mass surveillance system at scale. And let's be clear that DPIA needs to be done before the fucking technology deployed, not seven weeks after. Exactly. I'm going to spend most of my weekend bleeping you out, Alexander, but that's fine. <laughs> you said I could swear. Yes, I did. I said you could swear. Um, and the key thing is the DPIA needs to be done in advance and it needs to be done as a rolling thing from a governance point of view. Uh, Josh, I know you, you've listened to myself and, and Alex rap talking here and, and, and swearing like pirates about how privacy needs to be done properly from a, a trust and governance point of view. What, what's your take on it from a, a citizen perspective and from a research perspective? I mean, perhaps the first thing that comes to mind is I think Reagan used to use this phrasing of trust but verify. Um, and in our case, even with good DPIAs, maybe you've earned the trust, but we need that continuous rolling verification, um, as you've mentioned, that it's, there are, that there's a lack of oversight. An oversight board does not make for oversight. Um, also, that as human beings, we're very poor at putting things back in the cage after they've been released. There's very few avenues of technology we've ever been able to open up on ourselves that we've then decided to that it's no longer worth pursuing and using. Um, I think what's particularly concerning here is the composite picture of human beings that's starting to emerge. The idea of, yes, you can, with very poor accuracy, tell my face in public surveillance, with very poor accuracy, now tell my cough, with you know, appropriate accuracy, maybe tell my movements my based on the, the Wi-Fi connections of my devices, my GPS location services. There's a point at which maybe there's one or two of these things I would have been okay with giving up to another company, maybe for the convenience of a map service, maybe for my fitness services, maybe to live in a country that I feel a little bit more safe in. But there's a point at which that the composite element of it all just, you know, the safety you're left with is less than the sum of its parts and the places left behind are just so minimal. It's, you know, it, it's there aren't options. There isn't a, play, a point of retreat that comes to it. Um, I'd say it's also in terms of just public protections of, you know, we talk, spoke about, you know, would you back that product? A lot of the time, it's not so much about the 96% of the time it goes wrong. It's like the one time it falls through or the 4% of the time it falls through the cracks. You know, thinking back, Alex, that you mentioned the, um, you know, Patriot era, Patriot Act era, or even the immediate fright after 9-11. In fact, we still live in a world where we're allowed, X, you know, 100 mils on our airplanes. And the idea isn't so much that some guy is going to take over the airplane with the 110 mil water bottle, but it's that if you're the, you know, airport that left the guy with 110 mils of liquid in that somehow led to that, you know, flight being taken over, you're never going to be able to explain that. And that's almost what it feels like in the technology we employed. We are so frightened by this pandemic, and rightfully so, but we're so frightened at being caught at not doing enough with it or being out from power or 
been accused of failing to act that we'll throw anything at it. Why not? It's not so much about insurances as PR at a point. And this brings to an interesting point to play. And this is where I get to be a complete nerd and quote Picard. Fear is an incompetent teacher. And what we saw with the Patriot Act, what we saw with the well, way back when, when I was just doing data quality stuff, I used to do a keynote presentation about uh, four-year-olds being stopped from getting on planes because their name was on the no-fly list uh, as suspected terrorists. Now, as someone who has babysat four-year-olds, and now I have a, having had a kid myself, I've minded, I've minded a fair few four-year-olds. Yes, they are terrorists, but they're not that kind of terrorist. And we're in a similar situation here with the technologies we're looking at. It, what you're talking about there, Josh, in terms of the, the jigsaw piece, it's I call it the Kaiser Soze effect, where any single piece of information on its own, however inaccurate, isn't enough to really cause harm. But when you put them all together, that's when problems can arise. What do you think, Alexander? I completely agree. And I, I had a chat with Phil Booth um, way back earlier this year when it was announced um, that the contact tracing app was going to be launched by the NHS. And it appeared at the time that in order for it to function appropriately, um, they would need to be able to obtain the IMEI number of the devices which were being used in order to be able to access that uh, that Bluetooth um, stack. Now, I'm not sure if that's been clarified or not, but I did some research at the time. And and in on Apple devices, there would be a prompt for that. On Google devices, there was no prompt. There was just access granted. Um, and at the time, there was this, this conversation uh, that you know, there's no need to be concerned. The government doesn't know your location. That you know, nobody can know where you are. It's just a Bluetooth connection which is able to talk to other Bluetooth devices and and send on a unique uh, anonymous ID. But then when you look at things like cell site triangulation um, and the fact that the base uh, the baseband of all cell phones is able to transmit things like IMEI number um, to those cell towers then you then start to question, well, sure, I mean, the, the app itself may not be, but if that IMEI number is being uh, disclosed during this process, then it's then trivial for GCHQ or various other agencies to be able to detect who was where and when, because that information uh, would then be available via cell site triangulation. And, and, and you know, so, so that it's, again, it comes down to this trusting, you know, G, why would you implement GCHQ into a public health crisis. The spy agency, which has been condemned in the European Court of Human Rights on multiple occasions, you then introduce them into, into this part of the supply chain to deal with a pandemic in a situation where you need to obtain trust. And, and it clearly goes against that. And so it's, yeah, it's frustrating to say the least. It, it is. And, and the answer to the question, why would you introduce GCHQ? They bring the nicest biscuits, Alexander. They bring the nicest biscuits to the party, and that's why they always get invited. Um, like those cookies that they have, they're fantastic. Yes. Um, so ultimately, we're looking at what these technologies is, trust. And the trust is twofold. There's the trust, does it work well enough for the need we have? And... That's a big open question because it is a new, innovative thing that has historically had very high error rates. And then there's the trust of how are we communicating that and managing the expectations of what's possible with the technology. Because when we're dealing with a pandemic, we are way beyond the world of recommending next best purchase decisions on an e-commerce platform. 
And the last time I bought a toaster on Amazon, they then so- tried to sell me more toasters, um, which shows the level of artificial unintelligence that's out there in many cases. And the big question for me ultimately is, for anyone investing in these technologies, if you're doing it for a public liability, public health purpose, um, you need to understand the error rate and you need to make a reasoned decision on if the error rate is 50%, is that worth the investment when you could get 70, 80, 90% by buying masks, soap and hand sanitizer? Or 92% if you get it off Putin. Exactly. Um <laughs> <laughs> The other one, the other technology that, that's kind of bubbling up is the holiday of immunity passports or uh, COVID test pa- negative test passports, as the uh, the narrow gap that some of these vendors are trying to wiggle their way through because immunity isn't necessarily guaranteed. Um, are they a good idea or a bad idea? I think this this uh, what I'm about to say that's relevant to what we were just talking about and relevant to this. Um, bearing in mind that probably the vast majority of people who will be listening to this will be data protection, uh, data protection professionals. Uh, for once, the answer to establishing uh, whether or not these things are useful is really easy to do from a data protection perspective. But so, because we have, to, we only have to look at the principles of data protection law within the EU to be able to determine whether or not these are technologies that we should be embracing. And the first principle we should be looking at is necessity. Is it actually necessary to use this type of technology or are there other solutions which will work which are less invasive? The other principle would be proportionality. Would it be proportionate? You know, would the benefit from this uh, justify the, the end the ends justifying the means effectively? Would the benefit from this justify the intrusion on, on people's fundamental rights? And when you're looking at a technology which has a massive fail rate, I think it's very easy to say that certainly from a proportionality perspective, that threshold has not been met. Um, And from a necessity perspective, are there other ways that you can determine whether or not somebody has uh, been uh, or contracted or been in contact with somebody with COVID-19? Then, yes, I mean, traditional contact tracing methods are still proving to be far more effective than the technologies that we're using in, in contact tracing apps. It's been, I've, I've seen a number of statements by medical professionals and public health professionals over the past six months claiming that the information they get back from contact tracing apps is useless without that personal contact tracing follow-up. So yep. then we, then we, then, you know, so at that point we can very clearly say necessity. Is this something which is actually necessary or do traditional methods work better? And the fact that we still have to supplement this technology with traditional methods would seem to indicate that it doesn't meet the threshold for necessity as well. And I think that stands for both the contact tracing apps and this immunity passport, whatever the hell that is anyway, um, because we already know that people can't become immune to to COVID-19, even if they've caught it, the antibodies don't last a particularly long period of time at this point, yeah? At this point, yeah. Again, and that's why a lot of the vendors seem to be moving towards this idea of a passport showing that you've tested negative in recent time as a way of uh, controlling access to work, controlling access to uh, the supermarket, things like that. And that's what the, that's the concern that I have about these sorts of technology. Because as you as you said, Alexander, they are not perfect. 
if you're looking at a rapid testing for COVID-19, the error rates are huge at the moment. They will improve over time, but uh, you may test negative today. You could be positive tomorrow. And one of the newspapers, newspaper articles I read here over the weekend about a trial that's been going on in Ireland was talk, had the wonderful case study, the heart-tugging case study of the, 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 the care worker in a, a care home who felt that they were doing something to, to help, them, help them avoid bringing any sort of illness home with them because they were testing negative before they left the work, before they left the building. And that's great. But showering and changing your clothes and having separate separate work clothes from your non-work clothes in a high-risk environment, which is basic public health PPE protocol, uh, would probably be more effective. Um, and that's the concern I would have, that these things would actually... Uh, we, we, We've seen, we see it all the time with other technologies and other areas of life where a safety feature is added and people become morons. Reversing cameras in cars, Alexander. Mm. I love reversing cameras in cars or reversing sensors. A couple of years ago, um, my car was nearly written off when I was dropping my daughter to her, her crash, which was very small, uh, because one of the yummy mummies in her very large mammy tank had turned off the reversing sensors because the beeping noise irritated her and distracted her. Mm -hmm. But she reversed into my car at speed. Um, and that's the problem with technology. It can create a false sense of security because we like the shiny. And I, think the I think the other obvious problem here is not just that, you know, technology can instill a false sense of security, but so often when we're looking to implement technology solutions, we're looking at restriction instead of empowerment. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole point of, of a, you know, these, these, these new um, immunity passports or vaccine passports or however you want to call them is to restrict the movement, the freedom of movement of the people who have not obtained one of these documents. And that is a huge problem because that doesn't help to solve the issue at the societal level. It just restricts people's movement even further, has a, a dramatic impact on the economy, on people's uh, mental health, on their, their, their social graphs, and so on and so forth. And you know, if you're going to implement a technology such as a, a vaccine passport or an immunity passport, then you should also, as a company or as a, as a state, be responsible for introducing um, alternative methods for people to still be able to do the things they need to do without that. Yeah, so if you're an employer and you require somebody to to have been tested negative or to have some sort of card which states that they're no risk, then you need to provide the means for them to be able to do their job without having to come into work. And you need to uphold the cost of that. Yeah, because you can't simply exclude somebody because the world suddenly got sick because somebody ate a bat. You know, it, it's to, 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 to coin a phrase, that is batshit crazy. That doesn't move us forward. That is not progressive, you know, and if, if the governments of the world want to introduce immunity passports for international travel, then they need to find some other means for people to be able to do what they need to do for that purpose of international travel in the first place. We and can't that, just use technology as, as restriction in times of need like this. Exactly. And that, that's the key thing is, is it's the technology. For, and again, I like technology. I like data. I, I like solving problems with technology and with data. 
But you can't look at, you can't solve for one part of the equation here. There is a large societal impact of these things. And as Simon McGar said about the Irish contact tracing app, it wasn't a technology project. It was a social project. And understanding the impact and impl implications for societal interaction was an important part of that. And that's where, again, going back to the old DPIA, it's not just about the data. It's about the impacts on fundamental rights and freedoms. It's about understanding social and societal impact as well. And if you want to go even further, if we're not, if we're not processing personal data specifically uh, in a directly or indirectly identifiable way, you have the ethical questions from a data perspective of whether creating barriers and restrictions on, pe on people at a societal level is, is a sacrifice that is worth it in the grand scheme of things, or are there better ways of doing things at a societal level so that people are not left behind? And, and it needs to be positive sum. You know, Pardon? Restrict, it needs to be positive sum. Restrictive technology is a negative sum. Nobody benefits. Yeah. Okay? It needs to be positive sum. There needs to be a positive outcome for everybody. We cannot be in a situation where people are being ignored, where people are being, being discriminated against through no fault of their own, aside from the fact that there's still too many idiots not wearing masks, but that's a different issue. Um, you know, I don't think when we have a public health crisis, it's reasonable to segregate society uh, in a negative sum situation instead of looking for positive sum solutions. So what we're faced with then, uh, again, actually, no, so Alexander and I, again, have been hugging the, the conversation here. And Josh, anything you want to add to what we've been saying? He's been looking very thoughtful. <laughs> uh, honestly, I think, you know, let's say even in the nice version of the nursing home example you've given us there, sometimes it's just, you know, from my cynical point of view, it's, it's almost a competitive advantage um, that you're looking for in the market. You know, we're the nursing home that makes people scanning before they can visit their relatives. So wouldn't you rather choose our competitors? Um, and if I can, you know, I as a an owner of such a facility or of any other type of business can make people think they're a little safer coming to me than my competitor, I'm going to take that up. Um, the problem, as you're saying, is that that's great until it gives the illusion of safety when there isn't anything. It's like myself going out and getting a new set of great brakes for my bicycle and deciding it's now time to give up wearing a helmet. Um, or, you know, the fact that we'll use the idea that with cars, we don't settle for having seatbelts and, you know, and airbags. speed limits. We also want some air, yeah, airbags. We want some traffic enforcement out there as well. But all of that is going to just go as far as citizen agreement and control. Policy doesn't work without buying. And, you know, you can have the steepest fines, the most severe police authority. But if everyone feels like going out and driving like an idiot, then, yeah, a yummy mummy is going to reverse into you almost every week. That's just going to be the nature of life that we're going to. Um, and, you know, the part of it I find, you know, as I was saying that, you know, the idea of, um, you know, negative restrictions is you actually end up often with finding yourself in a situation where you're taking a negative bet on your citizens. You don't get anywhere. Um, pe disempowered people act irresponsibly and try and get away with things. You know, people yeah. who are entrusted to do more the hell, they might disappoint you. Chances are they will, but they might just rise to the occasion. 
they're not trying to get away with it. They understand we're in it together. Um, and, you know, it's almost like, I don't know, I'm you know, going throwing back to historical examples. I, you know, have this weird obsession with like World War One history. And I always think like early years of the war, you have all those really interesting stories, the, you know, famous Christmas football games that trench war, like, you know, really humanity rises to the occasion. That doesn't happen the second year and doesn't have a third year, happen the third year. And one of the things is that people just get tired of any situation. Public gets tired, human beings get tired. Um, at the end of a war, as much so as at the end of a pandemic, you know, we're not going to be celebrating victory so much as we're going to be celebrating the fact that we're just grateful that this is over. And those first few months of good public trust are going to dissipate unless you can find something to do about it. And that's the thing I. In Taoism, uh, one of the teachings is that the tighter you grip something, the e- easier it is that it will slip through your fingers. Again, Taoism, Star Wars, take your pick. Mm. Um, and negative controls are always ones that people will rebel against and will try and work around. Getting to that positive sum is where we need to get. Um so we haven't talked about cross-border data transfers, new standard contractual clauses, or the EDPB guidance on uh, cross-border data transfers, because that's a whole separate podcast today, uh, which we're not going to talk about. Suffice it to say, things have got are still complicated. Is that a good summary, Alexander? <laughs> uh, well, let's just say that the, the memo I sent out immediately, the day after Strem is to our clients, has not had to be changed in any way as a result of the yep. EDPB guidance. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so, I just wanted to add one more thing about this negative situation because I mean, uh, Josh uh, mentioned, you know, and you just said it as well, that, that people start to rebel, they start to react against us. And, and never has that been clearer than with COVID-19. Never have we seen so much social dissidence with regards to the wearing of masks or the failure to, to um, uh, implement social distancing than we have with COVID-19. And, and if you look at the UK as a prime example, they've had huge issues with people going, you know, flocking to events or beaches or, you know, other places in large numbers without taking the relevant safety measures, without um, social distancing, without wearing masks. And the same in the US, two countries in the world which have some of the worst problem with COVID-19 currently. And don't get me wrong, I'm not a fan of the way the Swedish government handled COVID-19. There was effectively no, no formal restrictions placed at all. Um, for the most part, but the Swedish people, certainly the Swedish people I know, and I live in a fairly rural area of Sweden, outside of the main city, they act responsibly of their own cognizance. You see people social distancing, you see people wearing masks, you know, this this isn't something which has been enforced by the government. We haven't had a lockdown here or not anything close to the lockdowns that we've seen elsewhere in Europe and the rest of the world. But we have seen that the, the public have taken their own responsibility to, to implement measures, which is why we didn't see as, or in my mind, is why we didn't see as big an issue in Sweden as we have seen elsewhere in Europe. Although, I mean, obviously we're struggling now, the same as the rest of Europe with the second wave. Um, that's a, a, a regional issue as opposed to a specific Swedish issue. But oh, one of the things that stood out very clearly to me was this, this, this lack of forced isolation seem to work much better here than it did elsewhere yeah so in ireland we're, we're in our midway through our emergency break lockdown uh in the run up to christmas but again 
there's an element of parenting there. Um, we've been, we were a bit naughty. We got carried away with ourselves during the summer. We took our foot off the gas. We, we lost focus on the basics. And we've all been sent to our rooms for being very naughty. Um, and we'll be let out of our rooms once the, uh, the numbers go down to an acceptable level. And that seems to be working at the moment. But ultimately, common sense is decidedly uncommon, though, isn't it? As we know. Oh, it's it's it. It's my grandmother used to call my grandmother used to call it uncommon sense. Yeah. Um, but that brings us to kind of the, the concluding point of the podcast today. Um, on these technologies, technologies are fun. Technologies can help solve problems, but if you jump to the shiny without understanding the error rates the likelihood of false positives and the impact and implications of that from a social and societal perspective, particularly if you're going to be putting in place negative sum restrictions, it can get very messy very quickly. And I was going to ask you both, if you had an imaginary 1 million euros to spend and you had a choice between buying an AI surveillance-based system for measuring all aspects of social distancing, COVID cough, Etc. Etc. And giving out masks and hand sanitizer. What would you spend the money on? I'll let you go first, Josh. Oh, in terms of you know, that's my personal investment, and I think I'm going to earn some money. Is it? Yeah, I would totally go for the first option. I would show, come up with the buy the cheapest possible AI system with the biggest possible marketing department and sell it. To, for a fortune, and I'd feel pretty confident knowing that the coronavirus was going to last a little longer that way, and I could make a little bit extra. If I actually cared about the public health elements, you're definitely going to have to go with the masks. Alex? I think from my perspective, A, I don't believe technology ever solves problems. People solve problems. People may develop technology to help them solve a problem, but people solve problems, not technology. Technology will never solve a problem. Yeah, it may be instructed on how to solve a problem, but it would never independently solve a problem. Um, secondly, I think being able to obtain face masks, et cetera, at the moment is so difficult. And there's so many scam artists out there that I wouldn't put my million into that either. I would donate it to the World Health Organization because they need it, because Trump was a freaking idiot. Um, and I think I'd rather put the money into the hands of somebody I trust who's going to use it responsibly and more effectively than I ever could. And, and in answer to your question, I, I agree with everything you said there, Alex. Um, the, I'd, I'd probably look at ramping up trustworthy production capacity for masks would be what I would put the money into. Um, and I, in answer to the question you asked before we started the recording um, about my hair and what motivated me to cut it the way I've cut it, I'm following the example of Mike Ryan from the World Health Organization in almost everything I do these days. <laughs> Okay. I think, one uh, thing, I think one thing before we go, one thing we should do here, uh, Dara, and this may seem, you know, silly or or whatever, but I think we all need to acknowledge the the work of our healthcare workers, our first responders, the people who are working in critical infrastructure. It's been a really shitty year, mm -hmm. and they've worked really fucking hard, and a lot of them have paid a really tragic cost for that. Um, you know, and it's it's easy for us who aren't exposed to it to sometimes forget that these people are out there doing what they're doing. So I think, you know, I, for one, would like to, to thank them for all the work they've done and continue to do and, you know, really hope that we can get through this before there's you know, too much more tragic loss of life than there already has been. 
absolutely i agree 100 with that sentiment alex like i've got friends who are and, and family who are frontline healthcare workers and i have seen the end result of the chronic lack of investment in simple and appropriate technologies for public health information management in ireland and elsewhere in the world and it's not a sexy end of medicine it's not the shiny mri miracle cure for cancer end of medicine but it's the bit that stops the outbreaks of gonorrhea in a good year and keeps bat pox pandemics in check in a bad year and they've had a really bad year and i think those got the public health doctors and their informatics teams are heroes in this fight and if they do their job well people don't wind up in hospital <laughs>